good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, March 7th, 2014. This week we've got gremlins in the studio, but it's episode 318, coming to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio at the controls is Jessica Lawson. Hello, everyone. Hello, Jess. Back in Studio C in McKee's Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hey, Joe, it's a sunny day in the rocks, and maybe spring is here. I hope so, Cliff. I sure hope so. Joining us later for our roundup will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Lau. We've got an interview with John Downey and Jerry Blaylock. We're going to talk about the new IICRC technical journal and Jerry's cover article. We'll also, of course, have our roundup later in the show, but we've got to get right to it. Let's stop and thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at Queen, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com, and C-M-M-Online.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. You can download the show from our website, IEQRadio.com. Follow the link that says go to the show, or you can get past shows from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have continuing education credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. prize by out-competing fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations. To Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, for being first to identify Joseph Aspen as the bricklayer of Leeds, England, who first cut cement in the early 19th century by burning powdered limestone and clay on his kitchen stove. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, March 7, 2014, has been sponsored by Triska the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the evaluation of work by one or more people of similar competence to the producers of the work. 
It constitutes a form of self-regulation by qualified members of a profession within the relevant field. This method is employed to maintain standards of quality, improve performance, and provide credibility. In academia, this method is used to determine an academic's paper suitability for publication. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guests are John Downey and Jerry Blaylock. John is the managing editor of the IICRC's newly launched technical journal called the Journal of Cleaning, Restoration, and Inspection. He's a fourth-generation carpet cleaner who's been involved in various aspects of the industry for more than 40 years, probably best known as the founder, publisher, and editor of the trade magazine Clean Facts, which he started in the mid-'80s and then sold in 1997. He also continued on as editor until 2000. Last fall, John completed a two-year term on the board of directors at the IICRC and still serves as the Communications Committee's Vice Chair. He is also uh, the owner of Downey's Carpet Care of Granville in Granville, Ohio. Jerry Blaylock, Edwin Jerry Blaylock II, is a principal at the American Drying Institute in Morristown, Tennessee. Since 2006, he's been offering water damage mitigation training, consultation, and research for restoration contractors and insurance companies. Prior to that, Mr. Blaylock worked at the Chuck DeWald Structure Drying School from 2003 to 2006, and during this time frame, he's been working on drying theories and an algorithm we'll talk a little bit about today designed to explain and predict how wood dries on water damage projects. His theories are derived from the understanding of how lumber is dried in the lumber drying in industry and also the physics of drying and his hands-on experimentation in his classroom and on projects. He has a BS in business from East Tennessee State University and a master's degree in education from Charleston Southern University. And we've got some intro music for these two gentlemen. Humidity is relative, but relative to what? If I were quizzed on what it is, then I'd be on the spot. So just in case to save my face, I'll look it up today. And then if someone brings it up, I'll casually say. Humidity is the amount of moisture in the air. All right. Hey, by the way, shout out to Derek at Coastal Carolina University on the on the. I believe he was the first on that. And I, I've got his address, Cliff, so we'll get out that prize. Hey, thanks, Joe. Thanks. Let's start with John Downey. John, we have you on the line. You do indeed. How are you doing, Joe? Great, John. Good to talk to you again. Just saw you not long ago, and uh, we talked a little about this journal. But I know what the reasoning is and and the motivation. But maybe you could fill our listeners in on why IICRC has decided to start a technical journal. Well, a, a couple primary reasons. One is I, I think the IICRC felt that it needed to do more to uh, show its appreciation and and give back especially to those groups that have been its strongest supporters uh over the t- over the well over the years uh those would be uh in no particular order the instructors in schools that uh work with the institute the master cleaners master restorers uh inspectors and of course certified firms those are all groups that uh with the journal they receive uh they print print copies of the journal uh, at no cost. So it 
you know, it, it is that that's one element of it. On the other side, uh, the ISCRC really felt that they needed to fill in an kind of a, a, a barren area in its uh, technical um, expertise or it, it, it offerings, I should say. Uh, the the you know it it it, it authors standards which uh, are a, a certain type of publication, and of course it it supports certification or, or offers certification uh, through training uh, conducted by uh, affiliated organizations. But the journal at, the the point to a journal is to uh, provide information, technical information, peer reviewed information that is not is is more timely than what would be contained in a standard uh it also uh the, because it isn't uh, it's not a peer review or it is a peer review it is not a consensus based um uh, publication it, and and instead it is peer reviewed we expect that we're going to have more how do i say it um, articles like Jerry's, <laughs> which are are based on new information, new um, developments, new research uh, that um, you know will get out into the industry and and kind of poke and prod the industry and and get people thinking in different ways. And I think the industry, the institute feels like. By doing this, we're adding. Patrick Winters, the president, said it very well. He said, uh, a, "A technical journal adds to the body of knowledge of the industry," and that is why he was very supportive of it. And I think that says it much better than I did in my previous well, several you know, paragraphs. I, Cliff and I certainly appreciate this. We we've been, you know, for going on eight years now focusing on providing education and communication and, and trying real hard to uh, ensure that people who bring information to us have some science-based background that, that they can point to. And in many cases, we've tried to figure out why certain things are parroted within the industry. That's something that Cliff's been really tough on. Uh, by the way, I want to point out to the listeners that we, we put the link, and John, I want, to, I want to ask this question to you as well. The link to the digital version of the journal is up on our website and also now, on, well, I don't know if it's on the website yet, but we'll have it after the show, but it's up on the chat right now. And and I think I understood you to say that the the print version is free for certain people, certified firms, et cetera, but is the digital version available to anyone? The first two issues of the digital version will be available to anyone, and um, I, I, I'm not sure if what you have is what I'm going to give right now as far as the access to the journal, uh, the, because there, I think, uh, Joe, what was sent to you for the digital edition has been replaced once it was moved to uh, the IICRC website. So. Oh. The uh, the digital edition can be found at iicrc.org forward slash the journal. Got it. Jess is putting it up right now on our chat board here. Cliff, let's turn it over to you. Thanks, Joe. And uh, thanks for joining us, John. My uh, pleasure, Cliff. Uh, the IICRC has a very, very broad-based constituency. We have cleaners, we have restorers, we have installers, we have inspectors, etc. 
with such a broad-based constituency, can you truly be consistent in terms of the quality of the information you're going to publish? Well, the way I look at that, Cliff, is similar to what I did with Clean Facts when I was a publisher of Clean Facts. And this is a very different type of publication than what Clean Facts is. Clean Facts is a trade magazine. This is a technical journal, so they have different functions. However, what my, my idea was with Clean Facts, I think, carries over to this. And that was, when I published Clean Facts, I wanted to have something in there for everyone. And I knew I couldn't have something that really worked well for everyone uh, while expecting that I, everything would fit for everyone. So we had some very technical articles. We also had uh, lighter articles, and we had short pieces and long pieces. We had PhDs like Mike Berry write things, uh, Aziz Ula with uh, Fab Pro write things, and then we had, you know, we had cleaning technicians write about the best ways to remove dog pee from carpet. Right. So, uh, it, and, and with the journal, similarly, we're going to, you know, we do have a broad base, we do have broad base con, con, constituencies, um, but what we have within those constituencies are articles that are going to kind of focus. Each issue is going to have something that will, uh, will speak to those who are inspectors, to those who are restorers or remediators to those who are textile cleaners and to those who do um, uh, hard surface cleaning uh, of a variety of, of, of kinds. Uh, it is difficult to, as I said, we aren't going to have, nobody's going to be interested in everything in a given issue, uh, but hope, other than me, of course, <laughs> but uh, hopefully the uh, the articles that, you know, the, kind of the scope of the articles will appeal to different uh, people that are uh, involved with the IICRC. The other thing, I apologize. I've got a a call coming oh. in, so if I cut out, I, that's that's what caused that. Um, the you know the while it is a broad base, the people that are receiving the print edition of the um, of the journal are, for the most part, the the most technically oriented people. Uh, that work with the IICRC. Uh, so those are the people that you know we feel would be best served by this kind of technical information. Cliff, do you want to continue? No, go ahead, Joe. All right, John, real quick, um, we mentioned this was peer-reviewed. Can you tell us a little bit about the peer-review process? Sure. Um, and one thing I will, uh, as part of that explanation, say is that we base the technical journal on a model of what would be called a science journal. But I would describe this as like a science journal light. We're not going to be, the standards are not as high the, as they are in a science journal. Uh, there's more freedom for different types and styles of articles as long as they are uh, technical in nature and objective and pass a peer review process. The process that we follow for peer review is once an article is submitted and has gone through an initial edit, it is sent out to three different peer reviewers for review. And they, their review, you know, honestly, you know, we, we've only completed one issue, so we're still feeling our way to some extent. 
but some of the reviewers have been very thorough in in and when they follow up and um, provide very detailed information or uh, request for more information or uh, they might challenge a statement. Uh, others have been more uh, what I would describe as a cursory review. Yes, this passes muster or I have a problem with it in this area. So the peer review process is, you know, the and, and the peer reviewers, you know, kind of related to that, uh, are going to be people from the industry who are subject matter experts on what's being written about. So it may be, it could be a PhD level person such as Mike Berry or uh, Gene Cole or uh, I think Richard Shaughnessy is another person I hope will at some point um, uh, help out with the journal in a peer review capacity. Uh, or it could be a, a significant number might be instructors, whether they're IIC or C instructors or people outside of the organization. Uh, it can be technical people that are affiliated with some of our MOU partners. Those are all good sources for uh, peer review. Okay. Uh, Cliff, you know, I was thinking maybe we could turn it over and, and, and talk to Jerry for just a moment here. Let's get Jerry. We have, I think we have Jerry unmuted because the last question actually I thought should go to Jerry. Uh, first, welcome to IAQ Radio, Jerry. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. It's an honor. Uh, Jerry, can you kind of summarize for our listeners? You had the cover article in um, in the first IICRC technical journal, and um, can you kind of summarize for our listeners? It had a, a kind of lengthy a lengthy name. It was the role of vapor pressure and enthalpy in drying wood based products. Can you summarize for listeners what that article was all about? Uh, I know I know that's a mouthful, and uh, try and put it in uh, simple layman terms is, uh, you know, what causes the evaporation process, and uh, there are many components, and if we want to kind of put it in its most simplistic terms, and I teach this a lot in the course, is which, which environment do you think is going to evaporate more water out of a uh, piece of wood, whether it be hardwood floor, whether it be SPF framing lumber, would uh, uh, hot, dry air do better than cold, wet air? Okay, I think that's fair. So we're looking at the best way to dry, in this case, wood. And I think we're going to stick to wood today, Jerry, but I did notice one of the recommendations you had at the end of the article was to do further research on other products. Is that accurate? That's exactly right, um, because my whole premise is the majority of the time when we're dealing with water damage structures that there's almost always some type of wood-based products involved. And when I was doing research, I did find an extensive amount of information in regards to uh, the lumber drying industry, industry, which is a completely different endeavor than what we do as restorative dryers, but there is good concise scientific information, uh, you know, that we can use for our endeavors. Well, you referenced the U.S. Department of Forestry Research within your document, and you do just mention there that, that it's significantly different from what we do. Can you kind of just point out real quickly what you see is different between drying lumber for, you know, uh, cutting it down into two by fours and whatever, into hardwood flooring, etc. What's the difference between what they do and what we do in buildings when they are affected by water damage? 
Okay, you know, that's a very good question. Uh, when we take a look at the uh, four service products um, and you take a look at uh, their methodology, what, you know, what they're trying to achieve, they're taking totally green lumber, which may be, you know, completely saturated uh, throughout, the, throughout the log, so to speak, or from the cut-down piece of wood, and uh, they're trying to get that. Uh, piece of lumber into a uh, dimensional size that's going to be able to be uh, put into service without checking and warping. And uh, so that is different in in uh, the respect of what we do because the vast majority of the time we are dealing with wood-based products that have already been dried, they have put in, they've been put into service. And so many times the saturation levels are not the same as compared to uh, green lumber. However, the common thread uh, that I see between the two industries is ultimately we are there to evaporate water. Okay. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Joe. I guess, Jerry, uh, for literally decades now, the structural restorative drying industry has relied upon measurement of humidity ratios, such as grains per pound, to determine drying effectiveness. You know, what inspired you to research the topic and challenge the way things have always been done? Um, well, you know, that's a great question, um, Cliff. When, you, when we take a look at uh, grains per pound, one of the things that I, that I like to do is I, I like to have a very clear understanding of exactly what grains per pound are and how is it used and how do we apply it within our industry. Uh, and that definition it is explained very thoroughly within our, uh, you know, WRT and ASD programs. I, I go into in-depth uh, within my training school um, of exactly what it is. But the thing that I have to try and explain and emphasize is that uh, the grains of moisture are a weight measurement. Um, it is not a pressure measurement. And there are two separate uh, two separate scientific definitions. And probably the best way I can try and explain this and why I feel that it is an ineffective uh, evaluation tool in order to determine drying effectiveness is, uh, and, and if I've just got like just a few minutes here, I just want to kind of throw a little uh, analogy out there. And I use this a lot in my classroom. I'm always coming up with some kind of um, ideas to explain something. Let's just say that we have... Uh, just for example, I'll go through this real quick. We have three uh, young men um, standing out in the yard, and we're going to have an assignment for them. One young man weighs 70 pounds, the other one weighs 90 pounds, and the other young man weighs 115 pounds. Now, their objective, and we're going to put five uh, five-gallon buckets in front of them. Each of them have a tablespoon, and their job is to dip all of the water out of the five-gallon bucket. My question is, which one of those young men is going to get the water removed out of that bucket the fastest? The 70-pound, the 90-pound, or the 115-pound young man? I don't think we can tell. That's exactly right. So the, the, my argument is, is when we talk about grains per pound, is if you look at the actual definition, it is the grains per pound of water in a pound of dry air. It is a weight measurement. There's 7,000 grains in one pound, whether it be water, whether it be feathers, whether it be dirt. It is a weight measurement. 
And if you take a look at the EMC, if you look at the Equilibrium Moisture Content Formula, which was developed over 80 years ago, and the basis of my work is the Hale-Wood-Horbin uh, EMC equation developed in 1946, the two measures that they use are temperature and partial vapor pressure or relative humidity. You do not see grains of moisture anywhere within that equation. Okay, and now, so I guess I'm curious that with respect to the, some of the published dehumidifier recommendations. Do you agree or disagree with these? Because I guess the, the intent is to lower the grains per pound in the contained or the, the work environment where we have the damage uh, with the understanding that if it's a lower grains per pound in the air, that the moisture is more likely to move from the wet materials into the air. Is that saying it right, Jerry? Well, yes, that's exactly how the uh, recommendations are set up. And the thing that I want to kind of emphasize is that that's what they are. They're a guideline. They're a recommendation. However, um, so I, I kind of want to pose a question back to the, you know, to the audience and the you know, people who are here on the, on the radio. If we have two parcels of air, if we've got a drying chamber number one and a drying chamber number two, and let's just throw a number out there. We have 30 grains of moisture in a pound of air in the first chamber, and I have 50 grains per pound of air in the second chamber, and we have wet materials in there. Which one of those conditions is going to dry the fastest? Uh, again, I don't know that you can tell. Right, you don't have enough information. That's right. That's like if I say I have a room that's 32 foot wide, what's the square footage of the room? Exactly. <laughs> and so my whole argument or my whole point is, is that is a conditional statement. And what I mean by that is the materials will dry faster if other factors are the same. And the other three factors that I'm concerned about are, number one, the temperature of the air the temperature of the material, and the moisture content of the material. So if the moisture content in both chambers are the same, if the temperature of the material in both chambers are the same, and if the temperature of the air of both samples are the same, then that is a true statement. However, a grain measurement is not a pressure measurement. They are two separate measurements. Now, I'm not discounting the value of grains per pound is an extremely instrumental evaluation scientific tool that we need to use, but it does not determine drying efficiency. Well, let me let me go back a second. So you're saying if all other things are equal and I have two rooms, one's at 30 and one's at 50, then in grains per pound, then that, if all other things are equal, then that will, the, the lower grains per pile room will allow drying to occur more quickly? Okay, but it's not because of the grain of moisture. It's because of the partial vapor pressure of the air. Okay. 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 And that's what we have to understand. When we look at the EMC equation, when you look at the EMC equation, you are dealing with partial vapor pressure or relative humidity, and you're dealing with temperature. Those are the two components. Now, the reason why we use grains per pound, I believe, is a number is a number of reasons. Number one, that um, and, and I know this is one of the questions that, that I guess all the time is, well, isn't 
grains of moisture and vapor pressure the same thing, that they're, you know, directly related to one another. They are correlated. However, they are different definitions. A grain of moisture is a weight measurement. It's not a pressure measurement. Are is vapor pressure and grains per pound correlated? Yes, they are. They are correlated. But there are two distinct definitions, and I feel that they have different places in the restorative drying process. I'm not discounting the value of grains per pound. I think it is the most powerful metric that we can use when we're trying to determine dehumidifier performance. Good. Okay, so that's a, that's the way you that that you suggest people use the grains per pound primarily as a determination of if the dehumidifier is working properly or not. That's exactly right. If you take a look at the, the literature that's out there published by dehumidifier manufacturers, the HVAC industry, uh, when you start looking at water removal rates, uh, you, know, what, you know, the two key factors that's going to determine how much water gets removed are going to be the CFM, cubic feet per minute that's getting processed through that apparatus, whether it be a, an air conditioner, whether it be a standard dehumidifier, a, a low-grain refrigerant dehumidifier, or even a desiccant, uh, or whether you open the window. You can still determine grain depression, and then you have to understand, excuse me, you have to understand the CFM of the air mover of the machine, and then you have to calculate in what the grain depression is. And there are very simple industry-accepted standards on water removal rates, whether it be pounds per hour, pounds per day, or gallons per day. That's the most accurate measurement of water removal uh, that we use in our industry. It's an invaluable tool and uh, scientific and, and psychometric uh, function, but that, to me, is its primary role. Okay, now, let me go on. I mean, I, I just had a, a text in, and I want to make sure I got the answer right. It said, um, all, all other variables being equal, chamber one would dry the wood better, and that I think we came to that conclusion. Now, so in, in light of the second law of thermodynamics, our industry has been teaching for years that more goes to less and wet goes to dry. So doesn't more grains per pound go to areas of less grains per pound? I think you kind of answered that already. Doesn't the water and wet materials go to dry air, drier air? But you're saying that's if all other things are equal. Right, and and that's the key variable, okay? That is the key variable. Um, You know, if I've got, what if everything is not the same? If I have, let's say I have five grains of moisture inside of a drying chamber. And in the other drying chamber, I have 50 grains of moisture. And we, are, and we do not have the other variables that are the same. Then which environment is going to dry the fastest? The chamber that has five grains or the chamber that has 50 grains? And that's your key point, is I think we've got to take into consideration temperature of the air, temperature of the material, and the moisture content of the material. That's exactly right. That's exactly what we have to take a look at. We have to take a look at a holistic uh, evaluation of the evaporation process because evaporation is ultimately the transfer of energy is what it is. And that's why, and so, like I said, the, the, the grains per pound is a valuable tool. It's a very valuable tool. Uh, but just because I have low grains in a, in a building does not mean that I'm going to dry that building out very fast. 
because you have other factors that are involved. And in no way does that discount uh, the the power and on how important it is to have dehumidification. And and I want to make sure that people realize I'm not making that implication. Uh, I'm making the comment that there are other things that we need to take a look at. And so uh, we have to understand exactly what the definition is. How do we apply it to our trade? And our trade is the biggest reason is dehumidifier performance. You can also use, and I use grain measurements when I'm trying to determine uh, the emission rates coming out of concrete slabs. I'll just take a piece of plastic, I'll tape it to the floor, and uh, I'll put a slit in the plastic, stick my thermal hygrometer underneath there. I check the temperature of the of the slab versus the air, and let's say the air has 40 grains of moisture, and underneath the plastic it's emitting 80 grains of moisture, then I know that that slab is, remise, is releasing more water into the air than what the, what is currently in the air. So there are other tools, but as far as determining efficiency of a system, then I just don't think that that is the correct tool for the job. And hey, Jerry, you, know, you, you, you introduced this term, you know, drying chamber, and, you know, I think it goes back to, you know, Chuck DeWaltz, and it, it's always bothered me. And what bothers me about it is, you know, we go in and we have one wet room in the house or a couple of, you know, we have a partial uh, wet area in a home, and what we do is we plastic that off, and we then are able to measure, you know, drying equipment performance and, and, and so on and so forth. And what we seem to discount is the rest of the house that's oftentimes warmer and oftentimes drier than the wet area. And you know, I'll tell you something. When I practice water damage restoration, I very rarely ever did what you guys did, which was you know, creating these drying chambers and you know, putting plastic up and segregating that area. I found that... Uh, you know, in my experience, opening the wet area up to the to the rest of the house would dry it much, much faster. Yes, I may have less water in my dehumidifier buckets at the end of, end of the day that I could measure, but I, I found that I didn't have to leave the equipment in there anywhere uh, as long. And this is saying that there are no factors where there is you know, contamination, mold spores, uh, so on and so forth. Can you comment on that? Um, well, I'm going to attempt to because that's uh, actually, you know, one of the first times that I've heard that. Now, do you understand the the whole motivation and the reasoning behind the uh, drying chamber that was originally developed by Chuck? Well, I went to the class, and I'm not sure that I understood it then, and I, I, I'll go ahead and explain it to me. Okay. Well, um the, one of the key things that we that we try and look at when we're looking at a water damage uh, building is we're trying to isolate the area that is wet. Um, I reckon I'm probably under the opinion that when we exposed uh, those elements to other areas of the building, then we are essentially uh, kind of letting the horse out of the corral, so to speak. So we want to isolate the area. We want to put in the equipment that specifically for that job. And once we get the dehumidification in place, we get the airflow in place, we start getting the evaporation in place, what we're trying to do, then we're trying to drop the pressure in that building. We're trying to 
and and this is something that I learned from Chuck. We're trying to drop the grains of moisture lower than the area around it. And so um, I understand your argument that we are going to open this up to the other unaffected areas of the house potentially may be a very good practice. And I reckon my question is, if you're drying faster that way, then what were the conditions in the unaffected area of the building? If I understood the thermodynamics, if I understood what the temperature and the vapor pressure was in those portions of the building, then I think that that very uh, possibly would be, you know, very beneficial to you. I'm not saying that it's, you know, that it can be detrimental, but my question or my challenge is, is if we're dealing with a room and we've got it isolated, but we do not use containment, and yet we have high vapor loads in the other parts of the building, we have high, you know, grains of moisture, high temperatures, every bit of that is trying to move to the low pressure system, which is what we're trying to create within the structure. And so it's more of a control issue. And I would say, I think that uh, to, in order to answer your question, is if I knew what the conditions were in the unaffected area, then that may potentially be a viable solution. Okay. Uh, but the majority of the losses that I have worked on, I see that as an extremely uh, challenging issue because the, this containment has been compromised. And once it gets into the unaffected areas, and then you're talking about the possibility of other factors involved that can really hurt the drying process. For example, if we don't have uh, the doors closed into the unaffected areas and, and it's a nice sunshiny day and Mrs. Jones goes on the back side of the house and opens up the windows and we have a high vapor load outside, 140 grains of water, every bit of that's going to come into the house because it's trying to move, it's trying to equalize, it's trying to go to the low vapor pressure, the low grains of moisture. Now I have surrounded my drying chamber with a high pressure load and that can actually retard and slow down the drying process. You know, I, I think we're going to continue to agree to disagree. You know, my, my comment is that based on my experience and, you know, the measurements that we would take within the house that, you know, t or, or within the building, that typically the rest of the building is a dry reservoir. And typically it's going to be drier, and typically uh, it's going to be beneficial for us to open it up because equal, you know, all this stuff wants to equalize. And I agree that, you know, wet wants to go to dry and, you know, it, it all wants to equal. But in any event, you know, we can continue to, uh, to disagree and, uh, you know, let's just kind okay. of move on because I want to get more into into your theory. Right. Go ahead, well, Joe. Let me just ask you one quick question. What, what part of the country are you located in? Uh, Pittsburgh, uh, northeast. Oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah, we can, yeah, we'll pick this conversation up later all right well guys let me do this i, I want to stop and thank our sponsors real quick and we're going to come back with the second half of our interview with jerry blaylock and john donnie just give us about 90 seconds Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. 
And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanclenfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services. All right, we're back with Jerry Blaylock and John Donnie. Jerry, I want to ask a question here. How does enthalpy relate to the drying of materials? I think that was a big part of your article there. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, the when When you're looking at evaporation, which is ultimately what we're after, then what metric on the psychrometric chart can actually do a measurement of energy? What, you know, look at the definitions that we have on a psychrometric chart. We have dry bulb temperature. We have the humidity ratio or grains per pound. We have vapor pressure in inches of mercury. We have wet bulb temperature, relative humidity. Um, but there's only, as far as I'm concerned, one metric that actually evaluates and measures energy, and that is enthalpy, and it's measured in British thermal units, because I believe that energy is the result of a energy transfer, and that is the metric on our chart that ties both water and temperature together in order to assign an energy content. And how do you use enthalpy within your drying process? Okay, well, enthalpy is comprised, and um, and I'm just not, you know, I'm not sure how well people are are, are versed in enthalpy and what it is. Uh, I've had a hard time just trying to pronounce it, let alone know what it means. <laughs> okay, but, can you yeah. explain it real quick first, or? Yeah, well, enthalpy is an energy measurement, and it is comprised of two components. The first component is what's called the sensible energy, and it can be sensed with a dry bulb thermometer. So we think of it as just the, the temperature. And so that is one component, and it is assigned in BTUs per pound. And we always have to envision a pound of air on average, and it's not exact, but on average, a pound of air is 14 cubic feet. So I envision a two-drawer file cabinet, two foot by two foot, by three and a half foot, and we can assign an energy content to that pound of air. So it comprises of two components. The first one is the sensible energy component. It can be that can be determined on a psychrometric chart. The second portion is what's called the latent portion. Latent is a Latin word for hidden energy. It cannot be measured with a dry bulb thermometer. We have to use a thermal hygrometer. Now, a lot of old school and people still do this in the lumber drying industry. They use a wet bulb uh, measurement. But what we're ultimately after is we're trying to find two data points on the psychrometric chart. And once we assign that point, so once we understand the dry bulb temperature, 
And once we understand the amount of water that's uh, suspended in the air, then we can go and assign an energy content, uh, which I think is foundational to understanding um, this uh, idea that I've come up in regards to energy transfer rate, because uh, that's the, the backbone, as far as I'm concerned, of thermodynamics. So, Jerry, do you assign uh, an enthalpy to a wet material, such as wood? You know, would you say that this uh, sill plate has a enthalpy of 60 BTUs? Okay. Um, now, this is a loaded question, and I knew it was coming. And so I want to kind of preface it or back up a little bit. To answer your question, uh, can an enthalpy value be assigned to a wet piece of wood? My answer to that question is yes. And I want to be able to uh, kind of argue my point and where I got this basis from, where I did my research. And it was a tough thing to find. Um, but I did find a reference out there in the industrial uh, handbook of industrial drying. And the, there are two authors in there, and here's what they explained. They said that uh, they called it the differential heat absorption of bound water below the fiber saturation point. And we'll get into the fiber saturation point here in a minute. And it says sorb water in the cell has a lower enthalpy than liquid water. However, contrary to other forms of water, such as solid, or free water, the enthalpy of bound water increases with increasing moisture content up to fiber saturation point. Above this value, the enthalpy of water in wood is essentially the same as that of liquid water. So based on that research, then I am under the opinion that yes, we can assign an enthalpy value um, to a piece of wood based on the moisture content and the temperature. And is that the temperature at the surface or the inside of the wood or both? That, that is a, that's a whole other kind of argument, but that is a great question. Uh, essentially or ultimately, I would like to have what the core temperature is at the depth of the moisture content. Um, now, as far as a practical aspect, if you take a look at the meters that we use within our industry, we have surface temperature laser thermometers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think instrumentation in, in regard to where I'm trying to go is lacking, just to be very honest with you, because I want to get the core temperature of the material, uh, because that, I think, is going to give me a more accurate uh, reading. So I think it's, a, you know, it's an instrumentation issue. How do, you know, if we're dealing with two layers of three-quarter inch plywood soaking wet, and you have a red oak floor sitting on top of it, and you have a 30-degree crawl space, and it's 70 degrees in the house. I know the court, I know that the temperature gradient through the material is not going to be the same, and so I do resort to another you know method for determining that that temperature. But right now, with the limitations and what I see within our industry, I use surface temperature, but I do use a another technique by using a meter out of another industry in order to get that core temperature. Okay. Cliff, do you want to follow up on that? I, I, I do a little bit. You know, you know, in going back to this reference book that you were talking about, and, you know, there are all these pretty complex terms 
you know, with bound water and water in the cell and liquid water and, 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 and so on and so forth. And it would seem to me that a lot of those terms could really be appropriate in the wood industry when, you know, you have a tree and the tree gets the water from the ground, you know, draws it in, uh, and, you know, it's all through the tree, and, and we, we have a tendency to know what green lumber is. And I think green lumber is a lot different than what happens in a water damage uh, you know, situation in a building because most of the water runs over the wood. You know, it comes in contact with the wood. The wood can't absorb it, so the majority of the water uh, runs off. And it would seem to me that, you know, you're never going to duplicate uh, these situations, uh, you know, that they have in the lumber drying industry where, you know, you're dealing with green lumber. We're not going to take lumber that's in a house framing lumber and turn it green again. So, yeah, I don't know. It just seems that, uh, you know, we're just, you know, kind of running around and, and, and chasing our tails. I don't know. I'll have to, to challenge you on that. Um I don't think that's what we're doing, because if you take a look and understand the definitions of free water versus bound water, free water is going to be the liquid water within the cells, whether it's a piece of dried lumber in your home or whether it's a green lumber sitting in a dry kiln. Anything above 30% is going to be liquid water. When you're down below 30% on average, this is on average, and it's going to vary based on species, now you're dealing with something called bound water. Same principle is going to apply in restorative drying as you are in a dry kiln environment. Whether that piece of wood is completely saturated from top to bottom or if it's only three-quarters of the way or halfway through, evaporation between the two technologies and the two sciences are going to be the same. And so I don't think that we're, you know, running around chasing our tail. I've gone into the EMC chart. I found the strengths of it, and I found the weaknesses of it. The biggest weakness of the EMC chart is it does not give us the biggest issue that challenges us as restorative dryers, and that's time, because the EMC chart will not answer that. But the thermodynamics, the science, and the principles of evaporating water out of a log or whether we're dealing with Mrs. Jones' soaked house is still going to be the same. The principles and the science of evaporation apply the same. So... Uh, I reckon I'll have to agree to disagree with you on that because I'm looking at the principles and the science. I understand it's a completely different uh, technology, but we're dealing with free water and we're dealing with bound water. Jerry, I, we're going to run a little low on time. I want to make sure I get you a, an opportunity to talk a little bit about what you call the energy transfer rate. You call that the missing link in the article. And I don't know if I should have set that up a little bit better or not, so if I should have and you need to go into something else a little bit before discussing that, please do. Well, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I know that we're kind of running out of time. Maybe we can, you know, reschedule and we can talk about this more. But when we, when we talk about evaporation, we have to understand energy. And when we think of energy, what do we think of? Most people just think of heat. Now, when I think of energy, I think of enthalpy. I think about the energy content. And so, first of all, we have to understand what it is. We also have to understand, well, how do we measure it? And can we measure it? And the answer to that is yes. Well, energy also transfers. Second law of thermodynamics, okay? What does it tell us? It'll tell us that hot goes to cold. 
And that's the sensible portion of enthalpy. And it also tells us that high pressure will seek a low pressure. That's the latent portion. Therefore, we've got measurable tools. And so if we understand what energy is, we understand that it's going to move because it's going to. Just like hot goes to cold and the high pressure goes to low. And then the, the last term is rate which is somewhat, I uh, probably could work on that a little bit, but the biggest number or the biggest thing I'm looking for is what is the force behind it? What is the force? What's going to make that water move throughout the materials? Um, and there are limitations. There's a lot of things in regards to permeance and density of the building materials, but energy transfer rate is the, how do we quantify and measure energy? How do we define it? Does it move? And if it does, then which has a stronger force between the two? So in a nutshell, that's what energy transfer rate is. And it boils down to numbers. And the, and the, the closest uh, correlation in regards to the enthalpy values of material in the air is, that I like is vapor pressure, which is something that I learned from uh, Ken Larson. Um, and it's a, it's a single number. Oh, Jerry, if you could... Within the article, there's a, um, a little experiment that you've done that kind of illustrates for people what the energy transfer rate is. Right. You have three different materials. Maybe you could just um, give us a more, you know, this is a great way of kind of describing and, and tying things together before we get into some of the final questions. Sure. Well, um, one of the things that I did, and, and I want to kind of uh, lay a, a foundation about um, ADI and what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm, I try and work in three specific areas. Number one, I call it having one foot in the ditch. And what I mean by that is being out here um, on a daily basis if possible. I work with a lot of local contractors on drying out buildings. I'm involved with insurance companies and, and people throughout the country uh, trying to help with uh, problem drying scenarios. Second thing is research. I think it's critical that stuff gets researched. And then the last thing is the education. And so I look at research, go out in the real world and apply it, come up with the conclusions and then, you know, be able to teach it. So the example that's in the article is where I created three different chambers, three different testing environments. And, uh, and, and this is proving in my opinion on how this energy transfer, uh, theory or algorithm actually does work is because, you know, what is the influence that's creating the moisture to be reduced in the piece of material? And so if you look through those examples, and I'll just go through the, the summary here, mm-hmm. is that in uh, the first test example, then we had that environment set up at 70 degrees and 38 grains of water. The second example was at 90 degrees and 52 grains of water. And the final example was 115 degrees and 77 grains of water. And if you take a look at the moisture content reduction and the actual moisture content and in the percentage, then the environment that dried the fastest was actually the environment that they had the highest humidity ratio or grains per pound. And that was the one with 115 degrees and 77 grains per pound. Maybe you could explain how how you um, manipulated the amount of grains per pound in each of these rooms. Right. Well, that's the that is the whole argument that I'm trying to make 
is if we say low grains dry a building, then why am I getting different results? It's because, well, maybe the low grains of moisture is not an, uh, an appropriate evaluation tool on performance of the system. Great on equipment evaluation. There's nothing better. But, what, but that is in conflict with what this test proves. And so in order for us to answer that question, then we have to come in and evaluate the enthalpy or the vapor pressure differential. Because at the end of the day, the bigger the vapor pressure differential, the faster something dries. Now, that's also conditional. We also have to have a huge responsibility um, because we can put very, very large vapor pressure differentials in materials in the air, and we can have uh, detrimental effects. But when you look at the results, the test that, that reduced the least amount at the smallest vapor pressure differential, the vapor pressure differential was 0.27 inches of mercury. That's an actual pressure measurement, like a uh, barometer measurement. That's the pressure of the material versus the pressure of the air. In the second condition, we had a uh, vapor pressure delta or difference of 0.48 inches, and it dried second best. And the test that dried the fastest had a vapor pressure def uh, differential of 1.19 inches. And so that metric and that measurement tool proves that there is a tool that can measure the force of the water that's wanting to move out of the materials. And there are factors that are going to influence whether or not that water is at the actual rate that that water is going to be able to come out of that material. You have density issues, uh, porosity. You're dealing with uh, floor coverings. There's a lot of other factors there. But in its purest sense, the bigger the number, the faster um, the material is going to release its water. And so that's what this test right here was what I wanted to go and find out because I wanted to evaluate the comment that low grains dry faster. And apparently, based on this research, I'm getting different conclusions. Okay. And then I just wanted to quickly, there's a lot of people in the restorative drying industry that, that rely on the IICRC's initial dehumidifier recommendation for their drying strategy, and that's in the S500. Uh, and I know that that's currently in revision, and, and I think there may be some changes, but we're, we're still dealing with what's there now from 2006. In fact, some insurers and even some insurance programs insist upon strict adherence to that formula. Um, isn't that good enough for the professional restorer at this point? Uh, well, that's another good question. And the thing, and how I want to kind of answer that is where in, in the standard is that uh, setting at? It's sitting in the reference guide. Okay, it's not in the standard side. It's in the reference guide, and they're two separate things. Uh, personally, I'd like to see our uh, our standard and reference guide be broken up into two separate books because one is what we're using as a standard of care, and then the other one is going to be you know guidelines, practical guidelines, and that's what we have to understand what this is. This is a uh, a consensus. Uh, group of, of people that have come together and, and they have voted on what they think is going to be a good uh, baseline. And the thing that I also want to emphasize with that is this is initial dehumidification factors. Does it have an opportunity? Does it have a place? Yes. It's going to definitely help you control 
the humidity levels, the amount of water that's going to be sitting inside that environment. But it's initial. It's at the very beginning. It is subject to change. And I just want to uh, stress that this is a guideline, and, and, uh, and that's exactly how I use it. Now, do I think that, and, 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 I, and it's no disrespect, you know, to the ICRC, but a lot of times I call it boilerplate sizing. And, you know, one size fits all. As long as we know the size of the box, then we can put in the dehumidifiers and the fans and everything's going to be fine. There's so many other factors that are going to be involved. And, and I'm glad that the, uh, you know, the new standard is going to be looking at these things. If you take a look at how we address classes, classes are a subjective definition. And so um, it is a guideline. Am I in complete disagreement with it? No. I think it's a good starting point. But there's just so many other factors that are involved that we have to look at other than just the size of the box. And we can just calculate these numbers and then just put uh, dehumidification inside of a job because there's times that I think that there needs to be more dehumidification and I think that there's times that you could get by with less. I think that it's a good initial guideline, but it does not uh, address, to me, all of the key issues. Jerry, can you stick around another 10 minutes? Is that a problem? I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm with you, boys. Great. All right. Cliff, I wanted to get you a chance to ask one more question before we go to the roundup and bring Dr. Wow in. And, and I know I want to get John to get another opportunity to uh, get a final comment in, too. Right, right. Um, Jerry, you know, you've obviously invested an incredible amount of time and effort uh, into this research. You're very passionate about it. Um, what do you hope to accomplish with the paper as it relates to the restorative drying industry? Um, actually, I'd like to see a lot of things happen. Just to be honest with you, as far as the restorative industry, <laughs> selfishly, I'd like to get more students at my school. <laughs> Just first admit that. Okay. Um, on, on, I'm sorry? I love the honesty. That's good. <laughs> okay. Uh, second thing, I, I, I challenge our industry to please be critical of this body of work that I've come up with. Um, you know, I don't think any man is an island to himself and no one's got it all figured out. Um, am I driving a square peg in a round hole by assigning enthalpy that, uh, relates to a piece of wood? I mean, that relates to a pound of air into a piece of wood? Absolutely. But based on the instrumentation that we have in our industry, it's all that we have. Um, I want, I think that if this information is further researched and I believe that it will be validated then we can actually come in and help assign drying protocols based on the type of material. And what I mean by that is if we're, if we're drying concrete block and uh, plywood and floor joists, then we can get a lot more aggressive on vapor pressure differentials. Uh, for example, you might be able to run a one-inch vapor pressure differential between the two. You go do that right there on a four-inch wide, $40,000 uh, hardwood floor with high-end cabinets, high probability you're going to possibly, you know, crack and what we call uh, secondary damage. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing, I'd like to see the uh, meter manufacturers research this right here because currently when it comes to trying to determine core temperatures within materials, I end up taking a 16-penny nail, driving down through the uh, plywood to get down into the floor joists, and I have taken a Klein multimeter that I bought at Home Depot for 40 bucks that has a thermal couple, 
reading on it, and I stick it all the way down in order to get the core temperature. So I think I look for instrumentation that needs to address these issues. Um, I also see that we can actually help develop drying protocols, which is going to, I feel, elevate the credibility and the professionalism within our industry and, uh, you know, and selfishly try and get more students here. That sounds like a, a great uh, goal for me from my, pen, my perspective here, Jerry. Let's do this. Let's go to the roundup clip. that worked for you? Yep, fine. We're going to ask, have everybody ask one final question, Jerry, and we have to get Dr. Wow in here and get his opinion on this. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, go high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, roll. Okay, before we bring Dr. Wow in, Jerry, I just wondered if there's something. Um, I got a couple quick questions. You're, you're not. It sounds like you do use some heat. You do use your dehumidifiers as necessary. You do use air movers, um, and and it doesn't sound to me like you're trying to radically change that. You know that um, formula for drying buildings, but. I'm curious with respect to how long it takes to dry a building. I, I got a text question in here about, um, you know, insurance companies wanting people to dry buildings in three days, and, you know, it's become a real problem for a lot of our restorative dryers out there. What are your thoughts on how long it should take to dry a building? Well, um, one of the things that I've learned is uh, from one of my primary mentors, Chuck DeWall, the time it takes to dry is the time it takes to dry. That's a very subjective question, and you cannot go in and definitively identify how long it's going to take. Uh, I have a personal, I mean, I have a professional, you know, opinion about people making comments that it ought to be done in three days. Well, what is the basis of that? There's just so many other factors involved. My biggest challenge is as an educator and a researcher and being out here in the field is, is the job set up properly? And so uh, to me, it's awful tough to go in there and say, you know, uh, we're going to have this thing done in, in three days. I just, I just do not think that that is a safe practice because there's so many other factors involved. I mean, some jobs may only take one day. A lot of it depends. It depends on the condition of the material, and it depends on on how well that ener that energy is transferring through the material, so the water can be released out of the material. All right, that's what I was hoping you were going to say. I threw you to throw that in. Let's get Doctor Wow on the line here. Jess, we've got intro music. <laughs> Dieter, do we have you? Yes, I'm here, and that's, uh, my God, I think I'm uh, back in my old thermodynamics class. <laughs> <laughs> I think my head's going to explode, Dieter. Help me out. <laughs> now, well, no, it is a, uh, how should I preface that? Uh, we said it between the lines, seven. there is no instrument with which I can go into a room and set the enthalpy of whatever I'm measuring, I can measure. That doesn't exist. That, 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 it can't be done. It's impossible. That's the first thing. And we said that already. Uh, Jerry mentioned that. And I said, hey, guys, here is 
Enthalpy means something if I look at two states. I have an amount of mass going over a control surface. Hey, that can be a uh, humidifier. It can be a dehumidifier. It can be a dryer. That is what it is. And it goes from state one to state two. Now, based on a couple of other factors, we mentioned that. There is no such thing as enthalpy as such. You can't put your na- hand on it. But I can, tell, I can give you the relative humidity and uh, uh, the, the dew point or the uh, dry bulb or wet bulb temperature. Now I can go from that one state to another state. It's being done all the time. During the winter, summer, we call it air conditioning. We go from one point to another point. And now we know that was the energy over there, and that was the energy over there. You can't measure it directly, but indirectly. And I said, this is how many horsepowers or whatever else you want to use, calories, BTUs, I need to get from point A to point B. That is, it's difficult to understand because we were never told in school, here's an instrument that measures enthalpy. We know what a thermometer is. We know what a hygrometer is. We go, oh, yeah, relative humidity is. We see it on television. You don't hear anything during the weather report on uh, enthalpy, I guarantee you. <laughs> I pronounce it, by the way, enthalpy. That's what my teacher used when I took thermodynamics courses years ago. And the other thing is also, we are talking here about the first law of thermodynamics, uh, which says that you don't get anything for free. Um, The energy of a closed system is that of the heat supplied uh, and the work done. Therefore, uh, it is impossible to have the so-called perpetuum uh, motion machines, which have been suggested so many times, where people say, it doesn't cost me anything to go from here to there. Well, that doesn't work that way. So that is the first law of thermodynamics. And it is, a, it is complicated, and uh, we have to look at Uh, And and I'm thinking about this. I have to talk about that in the future. And I will be coming up with something that I can use to make it more digestible or easier digestible uh, by uh, starting with enthalpy and say, here is this one point, and I got this point because I measured a temperature and a dew point or whatever it was, a relative humidity. It doesn't matter. There it is. I have done that many times on the psychometric chart when I did look at air conditioning systems. That was the main thing. And in fact, uh, we calculated how many horsepower it needed at the time to put the ice and keep the ice cold in the civic arena. Believe it or not, some of the calculations were made in the mechanical engineering department 50 years ago. That's right. My God, that is 60. That was 62. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, whatever the Civic Arena is in Pittsburgh, it doesn't matter anymore. It, it was a building where we had played ice hockey and many other things. And it has been torn down and be replaced with a new and improved system. 
but uh, the entire <laughs> calculations for the new building are the same that we did 52 years ago. It hasn't changed that. It, uh, hey, if that changes, we are in deep trouble. <laughs> well, I I don't know if you had anything else to add, but I want to make sure Jerry gets a chance to. Uh, and John, I'm sorry, John, we haven't. I think it is a good start. What Jerry said over there said, guys, this is not easy to understand. And I don't understand the theory of uh, relativity, and I think I'm going to die very happily without really knowing what that all means, other than that everything is relative. I know that, but that isn't what I meant. <laughs> uh, but uh, he said, look, fellows, I'm trying I know it is a difficult concept. I'm trying to do this here and there with, with the drying chambers. You can't say this one is better than the other if you don't know the system. And now we are looking at the system. Now we are looking at the first law of thermodynamics where you say, hey, i got to put in work to get this one out. The question is how much work do I have to do depending on the original starting situation. Jerry mentioned that, guys, you can't say this one is better than the other. There are many other things that uh, 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 play a, a significant role. Very good. Well, Dieter, thanks, as always, for joining us. It's, it's great to get your final comments. And, Jerry, uh, let's go back to John for a moment. John, before we go, anything you'd like to add or anything uh, we missed? I mean, I, we, we left you a while back. Hopefully you're still with us. I sure am, and uh, I was happy to be silent because really this conversation to me is says more than I could say about the value of the journal. It, it, it put this theory out to people, which is provocative, and uh, it's different. And in my, in my view, what Jerry is talking about are things that are deeper than where the industry has gone to this point. And, you know, if the journal can play a part in helping us to better understand and more deeply understand what we do, it's doing exactly what it should. So I'm happy to be silent. Uh, well, uh, uh, it, it, that, that is a good start with the journal. And we mentioned that before. This is not a super-duper scientific uh, journal for PhDs in physics and, and, and microbiology or something like that. No, exactly. Uh, we going to write articles that Joe Blow can understand and get a feel for it, and I don't think such papers are readily available. Thank you, no. dear John. Thanks for joining us. And, um, Jerry, before we go, I, I guess I have one more quick one, Jerry. I mean, a water damage restoration technician, it's going to be tough to get this theory you know, I mean, the standard guy coming into your classroom, do they have a hard time picking up on this theory? Do you go into this in great detail in your class, or do you just kind of go into the you know, hands-on component and show things as opposed to try and explain something like this? Now, well, what I do is I actually show them how to physically go and take the measurements. And, and here's the way that I teach it. Uh, the additional tool, the, the tool that you're going to have to add to your tool belt is a laser thermometer because it's the it's the you know there's the tools that we have available and if that technician can take a hammer probe and get a moisture content not a non-evasive but an evasive an actual pin meter moisture content if he can write that down 
And if he can write down the temperature of the material, and he can take the temperature and the relative humidity of the air, if he can write those four docu- those four pieces of information down, because that's what I include in my psychrometric chart, because my psychrometric chart integrates the material and the air, then I walk them through the steps. I have got what I call cheat sheets, and all I have to do is cross-reference numbers. All of these calculations are already done, and all I have to do is write them down. And if they can use a handheld psychometric calculator, you know, the little round wheel where we run the, uh, like the Weissler HMI 34s where we had to calculate grains by hand, if they can do that, then they can do this right here because I've made actual worksheets that walk you through, and you don't have to do any of these kinds of calculations. It's just a matter of cross-referencing numbers. Gotcha. And anything you'd like to add before we go, Jerry? Uh, well, I, I just I, I am grateful for the opportunity uh, to be able to present. Um, as you can tell, I am passionate about this, and I, I want to offer it to the industry. I think we need to take a hard look at it. Um, and, and I think it can truly raise the bar and push us as professionals. And I'm just grateful and thankful that I've had the opportunity and thankful for John. We've been on the phone for a couple of months and I've, I've really never met him, but you know, John, uh, hats off to you. Um, and I appreciate being, uh, involved with you. Thank you, Jerry. And I, when he said uh, for months, I'm pretty sure that was nonstop for a couple months. <laughs> that was a healthy, healthy debate. And I feel like, uh, yeah, like I've known him a long time, but we kind of cut through it real quick, and uh, we kind of lit it up real fast. And so, and that's something that I enjoy. Uh, if nothing else, the article will certainly make you think. And and I think that's something that um, you should be commended on, Jerry. It, it really got me thinking. I know Cliff and I both uh, have read through it a few times, trying to you know wrap our head around some of these concepts. It's not easy, as one of the listeners commented, but um, it's important, you know. And, and we appreciate you joining us this week, and we appreciate um, you hopefully coming back sometime down the road when we talk about this a little more. I appreciate the invitation, and uh, God bless everybody. All right, thank, thank you. All right. Cliff, any final comments from you? No, I'm done. I think that, you know, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, you know, talk to Jerry and, and get a better understanding of, you know, what he's trying to do, and I appreciate that, and I think that's how the industry, you know, moves forward. I think, you know, I think what happens is, uh, you know, my concern is I just had difficulty understanding it. I'm really not that smart, and, uh, you know, some of the stuff is difficult for me. Well, Cliff, thanks for joining us, and thanks, as always, for being here with me again on a Friday afternoon. It's great to have you as a partner and a co-host. I also want to thank Jessica Ross at the controls. We made it. If we can figure out what the gremlins are doing at the beginning of the show, we'll be all right. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Thank you, dear, as always, for joining us. But most importantly... It's a pleasure. I will be starting to write something about enthalpy. And I think I got a couple of ideas today from Jerry with the two rooms where you have packages of air in there, and one air has more mass than the other one, and it has something to do with mass flow. I will be thinking about that. You know, Dieter, I'd love to have you talk about that at the uh, summer, summer break that we do up here at Hidden Valley in August. That gives me a couple of months to uh, work on that. 
and uh, I, I will be thinking of it. I will be finding my old thermodynamics book, and uh, there are a couple of other uh, texts which I have, and maybe I can put it you know, on five or six pages. That would be great. Much In fact, I gladly send a copy to Jerry and have him take a look at it. And they said, hey, this is good, this is bad, I would have done it this way. I gladly, I know I'm not the, the only person in the world. Well, I'll get, make sure you two have each other's uh, email. That sounds great. Very good. All right, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to our guest this week, the Z-Man, Jessica, Dr. Wild, but most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We went over by 20 minutes, but hey, that's the way it is. We uh, The rules have changed through that, right, Cliff? Right, absolutely. All right, all have a great week weekend here. We'll be back next Friday. By the way, next Friday, we've got uh, Millie Walker. Washington's coming back with Howard Wolf. We're going to talk a little bit about IICRC standards. I'm sure this show will come up to some degree. We'll talk a little bit about the S-500 revision, etc. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.